So, when we left Noah last week, he and his family were rocking along in their ark. Remember that? They were rocking along as the sole survivors of a world deluged with water. They and the creatures with them were the only remnant of Earth, the only remnant of a catastrophic flood that the Bible describes as God's wrathful judgment on human evil. As our text in Genesis 8 opens this morning, it has been over a year since the waters broke loose on the earth. But now the rains have stopped, the floodwaters have receded, and finally the earth may not be dry yet, but it's dry enough for people and the animals to disembark. The great procession begins. The text says, Noah went out with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives and every animal, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out of the ark by families. And so creation has survived. Creaturely life in all of its variety has survived. All that is left is at this moment disembarking from the ark. The world has been wiped clean. There is nothing left other than earth and water and air and sky and a new beginning for the inhabitants of this boat. It's really worth pondering for a second the picture that is offered us here. Earth gets a second chance, a do-over. Humans get a second chance. Have the human beings learned anything? Will they be different at all? And what has God learned? What will God do now on the other side of the flood to relate to humanity and the other creatures? The text says that the first thing that Noah does upon reaching land is to worship God in the manner that the ancients of many civilizations thought most appropriate by offering sacrifice. The text says, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Now we're going to have to assume that in the year on the ark some reproduction went on so that there would be some animals and birds and such to spare for this sacrifice. It's interesting that you have so few survivors and some of them are going to be sacrificed. But the main story here is gratitude. Noah is grateful. Noah has his feet on dry ground for the first time in a year. God has spared him and his loved ones and God has spared humanity and the other creatures. God has spared the world. And Noah is grateful. <clears throat> we live. God has spared us. Gratitude is at the core of all worship. Of this I am convinced. I wonder where your gratitude level is this morning. Meister Eckhart wrote, If the only prayer you said was thank you, that would be enough. Have you said thank you recently? Maya Angelou has said, let gratitude be the pillow 
upon which you kneel to say your nightly prayer. Gratitude. On this first day of the rebirth of creation, Noah doesn't need a coach. He doesn't need to, know, to wonder what to do. Gratitude comes naturally to him and he offers it. And God responds by saying, I will never again curse the ground because of humanity. For the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth. By the way, that can also be translated the imagination of the human heart. Nor will I ever again destroy every living creature as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. A way to look at it is that in, in response to humanity's gratitude, God offers the promise of grace. Grace. There's going to be no more cursing of the ground. No more mass destruction, at least not from God. We might end up doing it to ourselves. There'll be no more disruptions from God of the seasons upon which human and creaturely life depends. Now, this grace is not based on divine optimism about human nature. It's not based on optimism. God acknowledges, as God already knew, that the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth. But God has now simply decided that in response to the brokenness of humanity, God will offer grace. We are still broken, but God's response is grace. God will not crumple up humanity again. God will not destroy us again. God will bear with us. God will sustain us. God never gives up on us. This is the promise of grace, and this is the message already of Genesis chapter 8 and 9. Now many of us here, I hope most all of us, can attest to God's grace in our lives. Even when we know most fully that there is something wrong in us, it is precisely then when we have experienced the goodness and grace of God. If we didn't know that there was something wrong with us, we would feel no need of grace. But we do know that we are broken and we need grace. And God offers grace. We sang, I asked for this song, Amazing Grace, one of the greatest hymns ever. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Such an unfashionable uh, statement in the 21st century, full of optimism about human nature. Unwarranted optimism about human nature. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. You know, uh, John Newton, who wrote that hymn, had been a slave trader. And then he met Christ, and he converted. But I learned in some reading uh, for the moral leaders class I'll be teaching over at Mercer, that Newton... 
did not repent of his slave trading until some time, or let's just say this, he did not repent the institution of slavery until decades after writing this hymn. So even Newton, who knew grace, was still only partly seeing. Isn't that interesting about us, too? Whatever grace we may have experienced, whatever blindness may have been cured in us spiritually, there's still a lot that we do not see. We always need grace. Now this message of grace, that God offers sinful people acceptance and forgiveness, is a great word, and in many churches it would be the last word. That that's the gospel, good news, that God offers grace to sinners. But that is only part of the gospel message. And it's certainly not all that happens after the flood. The story here in Genesis 8 and 9 is not just that we are forgiven and accepted. The message here is that God has a plan for helping forgiven sinners live a good life. And that plan can be summarized in the word covenant. My conclusion, after listening to a lot of preaching in, a, in my life, is that covenant is almost a completely lost theme, which is one reason why I come back to it whenever I can, and it's certainly here in this text. The good news is that God is going to give us direction for how to live and make a, a working relationship with us not just that we're going to be forgiven. So in Genesis 9, we hear, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I give you everything. So the covenant begins with the renewal of the original mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This was not new. But next, they are given some new instructions as to uh, their relationship with the animals. It says that they are now allowed to eat not just fruits and vegetables, but also animals they can kill. That was not in Genesis 1 or 2. And so this means that the relationship between animals and humans is sometimes going to have a fearful quality. This is new. And so we are reminded that life on the other side of the flood is not a renewal of the Garden of Eden. There is no going back to that paradise. It is indeed lost. The original harmony between humans and animals is broken, just as has been the harmony between humans and God and humans and other people. And so we need some rules. The next one is, you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. We saw in the Cain and Abel story that God viewed the essence or life of a person as being found in their blood. So that's why Abel's blood itself cried out from the ground after he was murdered by his brother. So this passage builds on that, that God looks that way on everybody's blood, animals and people. It has a kind of sacredness. So I'm going to allow you to eat the animals, but you can't eat their blood. That's interesting. That's off limits. But then something else is off limits, something even more important. The text says, For your own life blood, I will surely require a reckoning. From every animal I will require it. From people I will require it. Each one for the blood of another I will require a reckoning for human life. Whoever sheds the blood of a person or human, by a human shall that person's blood be shed. For in his own image God made humankind. 
So now we have a covenant that is developing between God and people that has at least six stipulations. You are allowed to kill and eat animals. You are not allowed to consume their blood. You must not kill another human being. There must be a reckoning. There must be justice for the taking of a human life. Human beings must take care of making that justice happen. God will not do it for us. And that reckoning or justice must be equivalent and serious. The text says life for life. So what we have here is the beginnings of a very basic moral and legal code for humanity. And the core of it is life must be respected. And human beings are made in the image of God and they have God's special stamp of sacredness on them and they must be respected as such. If you shed another person's blood, you have entered a zone that you are not permitted to enter, says the text, and you must be punished. But God will not intervene usually to make that punishment happen. That means human beings themselves must set up mechanisms for justice. You have to have a reckoning in a period before law courts, before jails, before all of that. The main way this happened was family vengeance. If you killed somebody in somebody else's family, then they came and killed you, life for life. Now today, some read this passage as forever mandating the death penalty for killing, and that is one way to read it. I personally think that in light of the overall witness of Scripture, we can think of other ways of making justice happen. But still, the message is that life matters and must be treated with respect. I think I've mentioned in here that one of the most remarkable experiences that I have had as pastor of this church has been coming here for the annual worship service of the families of uh, murder victims just in the Atlanta area. People are slain routinely in this city. And our church hosts the families as they try to recover. That's something to think about. But the big picture here is ultimately, despite all of this about us, God is still gracious. God does not give up on us. God will bear with us. Who could ever say anything but thank you to that mercy and grace? But God's grace is experienced not just in forgiveness, but also in giving us morality and law. The message is not just that God loves and accepts us just as we are, so just keep on doing what comes naturally. No, that is not the message. The message is that God has a way for us to live and that part of God's grace is showing us how to live, not just forgiving us when we mess up. So my statement here is that grace is guidance for living from the Creator. The Creator is the only one who really knows the best way for us to live, and we ought to pay attention to the God who made us. It is not a small thing that the very beginning of the law of God is a reminder of the sacred worth of each human being. There is a divine boundary around everybody that we are sitting with today and everybody we will encounter when we leave here. It's a zone that should... We ought to see it in a sense. And what it says is, do not harm. This is a person made in the image of God. Do not murder is just the ultimate part of that. Do not violate in any way. Do not assault their character or their personhood. 
Do not violate their body or their reputation. Do not dehumanize them. Do not degrade them. Do not harm them. Do treat each one we encounter as the sacred human being that they are. Is that how we treat everybody? In a culture in which the routine stripping down and abuse of other people, either verbally or whatever, is routine daily practice? Notice that as chapter 9 of Genesis continues, God binds himself to moral commitments as well. God cannot be commanded by anyone, but God commands himself. You might say God binds himself with promises. He says, never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood. And I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. When the rainbow is in the clouds... I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh. So now what we have is a covenant between God, all the human beings then, all the billions of human beings that have ever lived, and all creatures on the earth. Did you know there was such a covenant? This is the first covenant. The Jewish tradition calls this the Noachide Covenant. It is the first covenant in the entire Bible, but not the only one. It sets a precedent that repeats through all the later covenants, the covenants with Abraham and Sarah, the covenant with Moses, with David and his descendants, and finally the covenant with the church through Jesus. In a covenant with God, God binds himself to behave in certain ways toward us. God invites us to enter into a covenant with him, And we promise to behave in certain ways in response to God. Here, God's promise is, I will never again destroy the earth because of the sinfulness of humanity. But more broadly, God is saying, I will never give up on you. Do you hear this? I will never give up on you. I will never let you face the full consequences of sin without mercy. I will always act in grace toward you. I will always say yes to my creation. God is making a promise to us, to all creatures. The text teaches us that God is in a covenant with the entire created order and even the creatures, which ought to elevate them in our eyes. You think about the routine cruelty to animals that is part of our everyday existence in this this country. Animal experimentation, which is completely unnecessary. Versions of factory farming, which are very cruel to animals or even the way people amuse themselves by harming animals. All of that is a violation of this covenant and of God's will. We have a relationship and a stewardship responsibility of all the creatures of the earth. Overall, what God asks us to do is to respect life, to not kill, to not lash out at one another in anger, to hold people accountable who cannot be bound by these rules, to protect one another. This is the most basic moral law that there is, and it is at the very foundation of the Bible. Everything else follows from it. And we know that this is right because we recoil when people that we care about are mistreated or harmed. And when you think about it, the later command that Jesus offers, love your neighbor as yourself, which is also in the Old Testament, is in a sense just a ramping up of the implication of this command Because every life matters, treat it as such. 
Treat every person with the love that God has for them to the extent that you and I are able. So the command ultimately is not just don't harm, is do love. Love. Never stop. So let me close our whole Genesis series in this way. The series began with the perfection of the Garden of Eden. Do you remember Adam and Eve frolicking around in the garden? It was so lovely. They had all this great food, trees everywhere, no shame, no sin, no arguments. They got to hang out with God in the evening breeze. Remember that? But then, nine chapters later, after sin and Cain and Abel and flood and wrath, we have a new innovation, covenant. God makes covenant. God is going to have to tell us how to live because it doesn't come naturally to us. God will specify the terms of a relationship between him and us and between us and each other and between us and the rest of creation. What comes natural to us, apparently, is to do the wrong thing, so God will have to teach us how to do the right thing. You know, covenant has a beauty about it. As I look at you all today, I know that there are literally hundreds of covenant relationships embodied in this room and beyond. A covenant. We see it in a wedding where... I promise to treat you this way and you promise to treat me that way and we covenant to do this together for the rest of our lives and we invite all these lovely, well-dressed people to witness us making these covenant promises with each other. By the way, I I want to say that um, Jeannie and I will be celebrating the 33rd year of our covenant relationship on Friday. So, there's my Jeannie. She was three at the time. I, I was running. So, so anyway, um, so weddings are beautiful. They're very beautiful. But in a sense, they're not innocent in this way. Because the very need for a covenant, the very need to make sacred vows only happens when the world is no longer perfect. If we were perfect, we would not need to make promises. What we would do would be right, and it would come naturally to us. But we have to make promises because we're not perfect. And so in a sense, I often have said this to couples that I perform weddings for, you're doing something beautiful and yet hard. You're binding your own behavior today for what you're going to do for the rest of your life. So this is serious, and that's why you invite all your friends, so that when you want to be a bad person or not keep your covenants, they can remind you of what you promised. And then, what is a church? Some people think that a church is a a loose aggregation of individuals who enjoy worshiping in a certain way on Sunday morning. But I say that a church is a covenant community of sinful human beings saved by God's grace in Jesus Christ who have decided to covenant together with each other to be followers of Jesus together. If we were perfect, we wouldn't need to make such a covenant. In fact, if we were perfect, we wouldn't need anybody else. And if we were perfect, we wouldn't need God to send his son to rescue us. 
but we're none of those things. We need Jesus a lot. And we need a community of people to follow him together with. And we need to, to have people who can be on the journey with us so that when, when we're not at our best, they can be there for us. When we're not thinking straight, they can help us think straight. When we're sick, they can come visit us. When we die, they can bury us and care for our families. We need people to go on the journey with. And you know what? We have that here. And let's take care of it. And let's invite a lot of other people into this covenant community of people who know about two things, that God loves us and that we are sinners saved by grace and that we're going to try to follow Jesus with all of our hearts. That's three things. Amen. And we're going to do that together. Let's do it. Let's keep doing it. Amen. So the offer of the pulpit every Sunday is, first of all, come to Jesus who is your rescuer. And second, join this community of faith. If you need a community of faith, we would welcome you. And third, what else do you need to do to respond so that you and your life can be more what God wants it to be? Come talk to me. Pray where you are. By the way, we had a nine-year-old Claire Kennedy come forward in the first service today for baptism. She's accepted Jesus as her Savior and Lord, and we'll be baptizing her here in a couple of uh, weeks or as soon as we can arrange it. Who else needs to enter the baptismal waters? Who else needs to join this community of faith? Let's sing our invitation hymn. I'll be down front. Thank you for listening to today's Sermon of the Week. Be sure to follow us online at fbcdecatur.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Have a blessed week.